0: Hello, I'm Simon Barton, uh, I work at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, and, um, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, we've got uh, Joseph Tucker from the uh, Institute for Global Health and Infectious Diseases, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, on the line, and we're talking transatlantically uh, about the paper which Joseph is the senior author on, uh, The Disruptive Influence of Syphilis Cures Within Specialist Venereal Systems implications for hiv cure preparedness for those of you who've had chance to see this paper i'm sure it's caused a lot of interest a lot of discussion and a lot of debate about the future uh, of our specialty Um, i'm going to ask joe to say a few uh, introductory words and then we'll uh, we'll maybe try and explore a bit of, of of how far the ramifications of the analyses that he's drawn together in this paper uh, have for HIV uh, management and for uh, social health services uh, across the world. Uh, Joe, do you want to uh, to open up?
1: Thanks Dr. Warton. It's a pleasure to be here on the podcast today and I think we're at a really interesting juncture where HIV cure research is moving along at a swift pace and Although many things about HIV cure are new, there are some useful things that we can look back on in the history of sexually transmitted infections, and in particular, the history of syphilis, to, um, to help anticipate some of the policy and health systems implications. And so that's, uh, that's really the focus of the editorial that you just mentioned is is pulling apart some of the history of syphilis and um, looking at it with a critical lens and thinking about what could be some of the implications for HIV cure preparedness moving forward.
0: Mm. The whole specialty of syphilology was quite a major specialty, as you, as you point out, uh, amongst physicians and and grew out of of a sort of you know basic diagnostic uh, clinical descriptors, an awful lot of papers and reports about, you know, the manifestations of syphilis. And these these great diagnosticians were, were often really, really very, very profoundly important in the history of both the laboratory aspects of STIs, but also in describing the epidemic. What they didn't have was a cure. And as you say, in the paper, as a cure came along, and although maybe they made an attempt to to sort of control the the effects of penicillin and everything from describing, you know, prozone reactions and Jarish-Hurxima reactions and and, uh, and getting into that, they eventually, the, the whole specialty of syphilology disappeared, as everyone could manage syphilis, although maybe today some people would, would question how well it's being managed globally.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point, that um, syphilology as a field, was really born out of one of the earlier cures, Salverson. And after the development of Salverson, um, several United Kingdom regulations and policies really brought to life an entire venereology system that was more structured. And I think it was the sort of more effective cure uh, in penicillin several decades later was much more widely available and easily prescribed by GPs and I think in some ways inadvertently this more widely accessible cure may have contributed to the decline of syphilology as a practice and, and all of the training and sort of uh, medical focus that had been built up previously.
0: So, so in in North Carolina as I know in many parts of the US, HIV medicines, antiretrovirals, are being prescribed by primary care and clinic based physicians, are they not?
1: That's true. There's been a decentralization of HIV care in many parts of the world, I would say.
0: So so the the steps in some way, even, even ahead of a cure, are there and clearly we've had a number of, of debates over the past eighteen months in, in the NHS about developing more integrated care, sharing care with community services. And a lot of our HIV treatment sites across uh, England are not on the main base sites of big acute hospitals. So there's already steps of moving the treatment much closer to patients in their communities. And, and, and you're suggesting that as ahead of a cure, um, even though initially that may, may be around major research facilities, Ultimately, that'll lead to the same change where, where HIV treatment and care um, and cure are, are something which don't need ongoing uh, consultants, senior clinicians to manage. Is that your, your prediction as, from this paper?
1: Yeah, I, I think that is a really important trend the sort of integration of formerly exceptional HIV services and within the broader health systems. And even though in its early days, there were many vertical kind of standalone HIV systems that were um, put in place. The we're seeing now HIV clinical care is so commonly managed in the outpatient setting. It becomes more managing chronic diseases and managing comorbidities like depression, you know, substance issues, and um, the kind of more intensive inpatient uh, HIV practice is uh, slowly disappearing. And so there are a number of um, reasons why I think the the integration of HIV services with primary care makes sense. And in the future, as cure research uh, accelerates, I think that'll be another reason to think about integration of, of these kinds of services.
0: I think no one uh, in the UK would about the integration agenda for, for all long-term conditions, and and particularly around uh, prevention of, 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 of and better management of, of, of long-term uh, condition and, and their the sequelae. But a lot of people would worry, I think, and and put down a marker, which is the, that HIV is still a relatively uh, new disease. Antiretroviral therapies um, are, are, you know been around really really since the the late 80s, and we are still learning and charting the side effects of medications. We're still working out some of the the interactions and toxicities of of not just the new drugs that, that are coming through, but also some of the original drugs that we've been using for over a decade. So the concern would be that if specialists if you like, become an extinct species and move, move on to looking after and concentrating on Ebola or resistant gonorrhea or, or hepatitis C, then we'll lose something about the study and learnings from HIV and maybe if we fragment care or let care go, that remarkable success which we've had in, in adherence to therapy and success, you know, virological success of, of treatment and making sure people get access to treatment, uh, regularly screening them for, for other infections, toxicities, some of that could be lost unless we're very focused in our approach and make sure it's properly resourced, properly audited, and, and, and still, where needed, access to, to specialist advice and care, at least for the foreseeable, if not forever,
1: future. That's a wonderful point. And I think this is what makes it a really interesting tension right now is that to think back about these exceptionalist systems that were put into place, they were put into place for a really good reason, that they needed more resources, that HIV was the side effects and resistance and all sorts of both foreseeable and unforeseeable aspects of clinical management Demanded a specialist care system, and and not not to even mention the sort of larger global health implications that the victories against HIV across Africa and getting um, antiretroviral therapy to HIV infected individuals. In some ways, it's it's been referred to as sort of the the birth or the the genesis of global health itself. And I think these have been massive gains, and so. Will these gains be limited, or um, will there be steps back if care systems are integrated? And so it, it is a really uh, an interesting time and an important question to think about for health services delivery, because as, just as you suggest, many HIV researchers and clinicians are, Thinking seriously about hepatitis C, about Ebola, about other infectious diseases, and um, and there's a lot of unfinished work to do in the field of HIV.
0: I'd, I'd very much agree. I mean, I think when reading your paper, I, I was, it was just after a meeting about, about the, the future of HIV I'd attended, and, and what struck me was that, that one of the, the questions that's being posed is, yes, if we're trying and the, the medical model is moving care, from specialized clinics, you know, often based around hospital departments, to community-based uh, systems, including primary care. The bit that's being lost, the voice that's being lost, is, is the patient voice. And, and a lot of peer support uh, projects have been at the center of, of looking after people's health. And, and it didn't appear to me that, that, that the people with syphilis, um, as, as described in the paper, had, you know, ever had anything like the, the support system networks of advocacy that we saw remarkably grow up and be hugely successful in, in moving governmental policies accessing quicker access to therapies and that somehow in in that debate we mustn't just concentrate on the, on the medical bit of you know who prescribes your antiretrovirals and and looks at your blood results and looks at a rash if you had one but also about if we are looking at, at long-term care involving the patients truly and genuinely in planning the services and, where possible, encouraging and funding peer support mechanisms might be be a really important way forward not to lose one of the real strengths of how people have responded to the HIV epidemic. Were there any uh, syphilis support groups in the the 1930s? I don't think I've ever heard anybody speak about them if there were.
1: It's a good question. There were certainly a number of different groups that weighed in on the topic that were from outside of uh, medicine. There was a strong uh, women's rights movement. There was a strong social hygiene movement. But but I think you, you do raise an important point that no one was pushing forward the syphilis agenda and saying, And really identifying as syphilis infected the way you saw gay men in the 80s and 90s rally around HIV and form such powerful civil society organizations and the things that were done by civil society groups to accelerate the approval of new HIV drugs and really revamp the whole system of of um, FDA approval within the United states it was it was quite impressive and and I think you 're right that the 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 extent to which these powerful community groups civil society actors can be a champion for a more patient centered approach this is really I, I think it 's a model that other disease Groups and and other physicians and fields could certainly learn from, and HIV has been, in some ways, very uniquely community oriented and community responsive, and and that's been one of one of the reasons why it's it's um, moved forward so quickly.
0: Yeah, and no, that's a, that's a really good point. I think I think that the in a way we're perfectly placed in the timing, which is why your article was so well 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 received, is that we're at this decision about the future of healthcare. Many governments, whether in the U.S. or in, in the U.K., are, are debating, you know, how, how healthcare systems should be designed, afforded the balance between primary care and, and access to specialists. And HIV having been a, a, a you know, a, a huge global health threat and then a real success story can be a, a sort of emblematic if we get it right of how to to do it and may even lead the way in some of the long-term conditions. And those people living with HIV who also have diabetes or or rheumatoid or, or, or get dementia, we should be trying to do more which can benefit people with, with without HIV and those conditions, and I think the coming together of a lot of, of patient and advocacy groups, the, the, the experience of, of HIV advocates and campaigners and patient and carers needs to be brought to bear on defining the way in which we get the right information systems, data sharing, and giving people access to information to manage their own conditions and navigate through the sort of healthcare system most effectively, and somehow a lot of things that are being suggested are you know, special access points for people with comorbidities and long-term conditions, um, with, with home delivery of medication, and uh, why not home, home blood testing? Why not self-blood testing? You know, to what extent can the information systems help people manage their own condition? And specialists, of course, there probably will be fewer of them, uh, but they may well be working much more remotely, much more giving advice rather than individually seeing patients because there are, there are less rashes and lumps and bumps and lymph nodes to feel and, and other conditions. But there are an awful lot of individuals with, with specific problems that will need access to specialist advice, as well as realizing that those specialists won't be specialists, if they're specialists in HIV and ID, they won't be specialists in, uh, in, in cardiology or in, uh, or, or in dementia. And therefore, we're going to have to work very closely as we did at the very beginning of this epidemic with looking at multi-system disease and and working and breaking specialty boundaries and I think that's going to be a very exciting phase for young Physicians coming into this uh, who might think oh, I'm going to be out of a job, but I think there just might be something in the uh, in the study of of, of of how people living with HIV age with comorbidities. There'll be research to be done in that. There'll be work on toxicity of drugs, and there'll be work on the new healthcare systems. And it, it may well be a, a rich vein of. Of research, slightly like less exciting than trying to find a, a you know a cure for cryptosporidiosis, but just as valuable in the long term for the numbers of patients that are, that are going to ultimately benefit, and for the the, the cost-effectiveness and affordability of the healthcare systems. I'm I'm not despondent at all about the specialty, and I think what happened to the syphilologists, they they did ultimately merge into into venereology, dermatovenereology, genital urinary medicine, and in some cases to ID and public health. So so I think there's a there, there is hope for us as, uh, as specialists and researchers in our field. Do you, uh, you agree? You, when you wrote this and put the, the final full stop, you weren't thinking it was a <laughs> a warrant for the extinction of the, the, the specialty.
1: No, I couldn't agree more with you. I, there, there's a lot of reason for enthusiasm, and we need more bright young trainees in the field. And as, as you um, put so well, the... There'll be new problems both related to HIV and how um, we deal with HIV in the clinic and in health systems. And I think um, for the young gum genitourinary medicine physician, this is a, a vibrant field with a lot of unanswered questions. And so I, I do think the, the history here with syphilis can provide some interesting warnings to make sure that we don't underfund this infrastructure and uh, fall back on some of the impressive gains that have been made over the last few years.
0: Interestingly, there's a a paper that's been circulated through our our unit this week of syphilis masquerading as psoriasis and being misdiagnosed. I'm sure the syphilologists, uh, wherever they are, are kind of quietly smiling and going, you know, it still is. A great mimicker, and they're reinventing some of our wheels. Uh, so, so, yeah, I'm sure that the same may happen with HIV for a long time to come. Joseph, thank, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and, uh, and thanks for making such a talking point. I'm sure you are going to be, uh, uh, be updating this as it goes on, and, uh, and other people contribute to the debate, and, uh, and I'm sure that uh, people who want to email you from the paper with their own views and maybe one day we'll go full circle and syphilology might be reborn uh, in, a, in, a, in a similar or another guise. But uh, thanks for writing and thanking, thanks for you know, drawing everyone's attention to this, because by talking about it, I think we start to prepare for what may be the next remarkable uh, improvement in the, uh, in the management and an even cure of HIV. So, so thank you very much. It's been a, a great pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you, and I'd also like to thank. We have a grant from the National Institutes of Health on the social and ethical aspects of HIV cure research, and our website for those of you who are interested. It's S E A R C H I V dot web dot u n c dot edu, and our team is is very keen on social science and ethics research focused on HIV cure. So if anyone's interested, please feel free to email me or our team, and we've got a a blog. This is uh, an effort that is um, directed by Dr. Stuart Rennie and myself, and we're uh, excited about um, developing this, so thank you.